Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on episode 13 of my Houston Sports Podcast. My name is Jeff Balke. I'm a writer for Houstonia Magazine and the Houston Press. I also talk sports on Houston Public Media's Houston Matters program most Mondays at 12.45 p.m. on KUHF 88.7 FM. You can hit me up on Twitter. My handle there is at Jeff Balke, B-A-L-K-E. Or you can get me via email at jeffbalke at gmail.com. All of this information will be posted on my blog, which is at jeffbalke.com. Pretty easy all the way around to remember. I'll have some links and things like that to some of the stories that I've written and others have written along the way. <clears throat> the Astros are in Boston. I have a few concerns. The Texans are also in Boston, well, technically Foxborough, on Sunday for week one. And the Rockets dump Ryan Anderson Finally, and I don't mean that in a terrible mean way, just they've been trying for a while. So we're going to get to all three of those. We're going to start topic one, Astros worries. So I want to preface this by saying that I'm not overly worried about the Astros. I think they're still very, very good. They're one game ahead of their pace from last season. They just swept the Twins. They had a very good homestand. But now they're heading into their last really significant series of the year against the baseball's best team in the Boston Red Sox. Um, <clears throat> I think the, the key here is that there are a few concerns that I have. I wrote about these for the Houston Press. They came out, it came out today. And I just want to kind of go over them because I said there are three things that, that worry me about the Astros and three things that don't. So I'm going to try and balance those things out. First, let's talk about the things that don't worry me. I think it's always good to start sort of with an, on an upbeat note. <clears throat> the first thing I'm not worried about are the A's. The A's are three and a half games back as of today. Uh, I don't think the A's are going to catch the Astros. I really don't. I think they've been a little down in the last couple weeks, and I feel like their schedule is just a tad more difficult than the Astros going forward, mainly because they face the Mariners, and the Mariners are trying to fight for their playoff lives at the moment. But the other thing, too, is I just there's a feeling about this that says the A's got really, really close, surprisingly close. I don't think anybody would have expected it if you asked people in April. But I just don't think they're quite there. I think they are going to get obviously the wild card spot, and they'll probably and they'll face off against the Yankees. Um, so I'm not worried about them. I'm also not worried about Jose Altuve. Last night he broke an 0 for 19 slump at the plate, which is so odd for a guy like him who is just so ridiculously good at hitting the baseball. Look, <clears throat> guys go through slumps, and this may have been a particularly protracted slump. For Jose Altuve, but it's Jose Altuve. The guy, if there's one thing he does, is he hits the baseball. And I, he's going to continue to hit that baseball regardless of what happens around him. You know, he's just not a guy who you look at and go, well, that might be it for Jose Altuve. First of all, he's still young. Second of all, he came back from an injury with his knee. And so he's, we saw last night, if you saw him running the base pass, he clearly has no problem with that knee at the moment because he's running super fast. I think right now he just was kind of working his way back in, trying to feel his way out, and uh, I think he's going to improve over September, and he'll be he'll be very good going forward. The third thing that I am not worried about is the pitching. So last year in August, the biggest concern for the Astros was pitching, right? <clears throat> so before the Verlander trade, Dallas Keuchel was struggling. Lance McCullers Jr. was hurt again. Uh, the bullpen was gassed. They were really struggling in the bullpen. In fact, last year was a big struggle for them. The guy who pitched the most innings for the Astros was Mike Fires. I mean, you know, that just should tell you a lot. 
in the postseason, they could barely even play their bullpen um, because they were worried about giving up runs. They were pitching starters a lot of times out of the bullpen. This year is different. They have three legit aces in their lineup with Justin Verlander, Dallas Keuchel, and Garrett Cole. Charlie Morton is on the DL, although I think he's going to be back in time for the playoffs. He might get a start in the first round. McCullers, he's going to start pitching probably in a week or so. Actually, I think he's going to pitch this weekend out of the bullpen, do a bullpen session, see how he does. He's going to be another bullpen arm, but their bullpen is fantastic. Look, for whatever you think about Osuna's behavior, the guy has been lights out on the, you know, on the mound. And you look at Ryan Presley, who's been fantastic. Uh, Joe Smith has really turned it around and been great. Hector Rondon has been up and down. But look, they've had good pitching outings from their entire bullpen. And that doesn't even, we're not even talking about their starters. They have the best pitching rotation in all of baseball. And <clears throat> that's really not overstating it. So I'm not worried about that. So here are the things I am worried about. The first one is home field advantage. So the Astros have not been good at home this year, and they've been particularly bad offensively. Interestingly enough, I did a little bit of research, and Minute Maid Park has not ranked in the top 20 in scoring for any team since 2014. In fact, this year, the Astros, I think, are dead last. Maybe or maybe they're 28th. So <clears throat> they're way down the list. And they have not been good. Now, there was a suggestion on Sunday night by Alex Rodriguez on the uh, Sunday Night Baseball that maybe the batter's eye, which is that big sort of green ivy-covered box uh, that is designed to be a backdrop for the pitcher when the batter is in the batter's box. When he's standing there, he can see the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand because it's a white ball against a green background. And, and Alex Rodriguez suggested that the, maybe the batter's eye just wasn't big enough. And as a result, they were having a hard time seeing the ball come out of the pitcher's hands. But the truth is, the Astros haven't been good at home in a while. And they're exactly the opposite. You know, normally when you're a good uh, team uh, in any sport, you win about two-thirds of your games at home and a little better than 50% you know, on the road. The Astros are basically the exact reverse of that. So they, I'm not sure what the solution is, but that does concern me going into the playoffs. This team needs to be good at home, Um, even though they're probably going to have quite a few road games. uh, They're probably going to not, excuse me, not have home field advantage, uh, at least in one series. But that is a concern. Another one that is a concern for me is double plays. The Astros rank dead last in baseball in hitting into double plays. They're on pace to break the single season team record for that mark, which is terrible. Double plays are rally killers. You know, just when you get an opportunity, you hit into a double play, you get some guys on base, and it, it, that's, a, that's a not something you want. Because one of the things that was great about the Astros, particularly last year, is they were just money. And I use the word money twice in this, which is my, my apologies to you, dear listener. But they were great <clears throat> when they had guys in scoring position, when they had guys on base. They were great at putting up a crooked number in an inning with a rally. And they've had some struggles with that this year with this sort of, you know, issue of hitting into double plays. Now, the good news is the Red Sox are also in the bottom five with the Astros. So it's not as if they're alone. Some of this, I'm sure, can be attributed to the fact that they swing very hard because they're swimming, swinging for the fences. This is part of the new modern baseball. Um, and I think some of it is teams have learned how to play them a little bit differently. So 
<clears throat> there may need to be some adjustment to that, but that's that is a concern. And my num my I don't call this number one concern, but my other concern is Carlos Correa. So Charlie Palillo, who's on ESPN ninety seven five, I was listening to him yesterday, and credit him for this. In the sixty seven games since May that Carlos Correa has played, now he didn't play yesterday; he had a day off. He's batting two ten. His on base percentage is just over three hundred, and he has a slugging percentage of like three seventy. That is not what you want from a guy who is expected to be not only one of your young phenoms, but who's your cleanup hitter. You don't want your fourth guy in the lineup hitting 210 with a slugging of 370. I'm not sure what's going on with Correa, if it's, an, if it's still an injury problem that he has or if he's just not seeing the ball well. But, you know, it's interesting to me that... The scenario that is sort of setting itself up is one that is similar to what the Yankees saw with A-Rod and Derek Cheater. Now, A-Rod was a proven commodity when he came over from the Rangers, and a lot of Yankee fans didn't like him because they gave him, you know, $200 million or whatever it was. Um, But, you know, this was a situation where Derek Cheater basically deferred to A-Rod to make it easier for him. You know, moved around, didn't play shortstop, But Jeter was the fan favorite. Feels a little bit like that with Alex Bregman. Alex Bregman really should be the shortstop on this team. He's got more range than Correa. He's smaller, lower to the ground, which is what you want from a shortstop. Correa has that huge arm, which would serve him well from third base. He doesn't have to move quite as much. And frankly, with so much with the shift on so much, he'd probably be playing shortstop a lot of times anyway. But that obviously that's not something that'll be dealt with this season. But it just feels like we're seeing the ascendance of Alex Bregman and then the question marks surrounding a guy like Correa. There's a couple more years left before arbitration. And obviously, this is I'm not sounding the doom and gloom alarm here. I'm not going to do that because it's just really premature. But this year, Alex Bregman is having a better year than any year that Carlos Correa has had to this point in his career. And so <clears throat> we have to really start thinking about is this something that the Astros can live with? And and on top of that, how long can are they going to watch him? You know, there was a analysis done of Correa before he came to the Astros. I was I was reading about this, saying that his ceiling really as a player, this is before he this is when he was drafted, was hitting 280 with 35 home runs or 38 home runs. That was like his ceiling, right? So Maybe what we're seeing out of him, he just has a power dip, and and that's really it. And maybe that's all we're getting, and maybe our expectations are too high. But I think we all need to be a little, at least a little concerned, especially given the fact the Astros have put so much into him as one of their marquee players. And maybe he just isn't that guy, or maybe he is. Maybe he'll turn it around in October, or maybe next year he'll just you know tear through the season and become the MVP. We don't know. Anyway, those are some concerns and some not concerns. Uh, about the Astros going forward. All right, topic two, Texans-Patriots week one. Interestingly enough, the Sunday night baseball game, they moved the Astros to Sunday night. The Texans are Sunday afternoon. So a pair of uh, Houston teams in uh, New England to face a pair of really good teams. So playing New England is never easy, but it's better to do it in week one because they don't have any film on the Texans, and Bill Belichick is notorious, and you've seen Bill O'Brien play really close to the vest in the playoff, in the, excuse me, in the preseason. 
Um, God, how could anyone confuse the playoffs in the preseason? They're literally the polar opposite. Um, but you've seen him play it really close to the vest, not play all his starters a lot, play very vanilla sets on offense and defense. Uh, that's really, you know, and I'm sure p- at least part of the thinking is I don't want, you know, Belichick knowing anything that we're doing. So <clears throat> that's w- number one. I think the biggest thing in going to New England is can they get to Brady? Can the defense get to Brady? Because we've seen in the past that when Tom Brady is impacted by the rush, it leaves him somewhat vulnerable. And look, as as sort of amazing as Tom Brady has been in continuing to play well at his age, he does not have the mobility. He's Well, he's never been a very mobile quarterback, but he is, certainly has less mobility now than ever. And so if this, this defense with all of those pass rushers can get to him and hit him, that could shake them up. On the other side, can Watson be, can Deshaun Watson be the dominant quarterback that we saw in limited time last year. He looks so fluid when he's on the field. He's one, It's so interesting. He's so fun to watch because he just looks completely at ease out there. Can he do that against New England? You know, we have, there are a lot of question marks about what New England is going to be this year as a team. Brady is not exactly surrounded with great offensive talent. Their defense has some question marks on it. <clears throat> the other thing, too, with the offense for the, for the uh, Texans is will they have a running game? You know, um, Lamar Miller's slimmed down. Uh, they have some you know new additions. They're still without Deonta Foreman, who's on the pup list, who's going to miss the first, I guess it's six or eight games this season. I can't remember which that is. So can they get a running game going? Can they sort of slow the game down and give play-action pass options to Deshaun Watson? That's going to be another big question. And then the other thing is, you know, are the Patriots just, are they going to be the same? You know, I mentioned this a minute ago, but... Bill Belichick is still great as a coach, whether you like him or not, and, and, and I don't. But he is still great, and you can recognize greatness. Tom Brady is still a great quarterback, despite his age. <clears throat> in some ways, I feel like the Patriots are kind of like the Spurs in the NBA. Like, when are the wheels finally going to come off? Because as we know, the only thing that's undefeated in this world is Mother Nature. Time will get everybody eventually. So we just have to wonder how long it's going to take before that occurs. As far as my prediction, uh, I'm going to pick the Texans. You know, I think it's going to be a fairly close game. But the truth of the matter is, is I think that the Texans are loaded with offensive weapons for Deshaun Watson. They have what I think is going to be a very good, very scary defense. I think they're going to be a little better than even people are thinking. We haven't seen anything from them, so it's hard to predict, obviously. I think the Texans are going to be good, and I think they're going to come out of the gate. I And the other thing, too, is, and somebody mentioned this today, I think it may have been in the Chronicle, they said that, you know, this is a much more important game to the Texans than it is to the Patriots. I mean, it's hard to win in Foxborough. The Texans have been embarrassed up there a few times. I think this might be personal for them, and, and uh, we'll see them go up there and give a good effort. I think it'll be a relatively close game, but I'm going to call it for the Texans. I'm going to say... Uh, I hate giving scores because I always feel weird about that because how do I, how the hell should I know, especially in game one. But I'm going to go ahead and say 31-24 Texans. So there's my prediction. We'll see if I'm right. Okay, <clears throat> finally moving on to topic three, and that is the Rockets trading Ryan Anderson. So Ryan Anderson, the uh, stretch four, 
the Rockets had brought in was they were paying him $20 million a year. There's two more seasons left on his deal. Nobody thought they were going to be able to unload him. And Daryl Morey, again, waves his magic wand. I wonder if he went to uh, Ollivander's to get that wand. That's right. That was a Harry Potter reference, you nerds. Um, he waved his magic wand and managed to move Ryan Anderson, in this case, to the Phoenix Suns, who apparently are collecting Rockets players. <clears throat> and in exchange for Brandon Knight, uh, point guard Brandon Knight, and Marquise Chris, a young sort of power forward slash center type. Now, in the trade, the Rockets had to give up DeAnthony Melton, who they drafted in the second round and really did look quite promising as a young prospect. But it did avoid them having to give up a number one draft pick, which everybody thought they would have to. The other thing is Brandon Knight is still making $14 million. So it's not a huge salary cap savings, but I think over two years, it's a right around $11 million that they save, uh, not just in luxury tax. And they're, and they're saving more than that because of the luxury tax that they would have to pay. Um, but it also just frees them up. It gives them some more assets. You know, Ryan Anderson's not good trade bait. Brandon Knight probably is. Marquise Chris probably is. Chris is, I think, in the last year of his rookie deal before his option period co- uh, comes to an end. So... <clears throat> Let's take a look here real quick at uh, at the guys that they got. You know, good luck to Ryan Anderson. He's a good dude. Um, you know, just couldn't shoot straight in Toyota Center, unfortunately. But let's look for. I'm going to start with Marquise Chris because he's maybe a little bit more easy, to, a little bit easier to sort of uh, diagnose. So Chris is a long, lanky, athletic big man. They took a big risk drafting him in the top ten. It hasn't really paid off. I think the expectations for Chris were maybe a little too high. He's a guy that might be able... He's he's a guy that I think is sort of Clint Capella, maybe ultra light, right? He's not as, as big as Clint Capella, but he has a very long wingspan. He's not a bad shot blocker from the weak side. <clears throat> he can run the floor. He seems like in that type of situation, he might fit the Rockets. Now, they're not going to play him on the floor with, with Capella at any time because he can't shoot. So... They're going to put him in as a replacement for Capella, or they're going to play him as, you know, a five in a situation where they've got, you know, a bunch of smaller guys. I honestly think Chris is probably not going to play that much. I think he's going to spend some time in the G League this year. But the advantage you have with Chris is that he is a long, athletic guy at that position. And I think it just gives you another athlete. Plus, Nene, who's still with the Rockets, you know, he's been sort of lauded for what he's done with Capella, helping to get his attitude adjusted, helping to sort of get him in the weight room. Maybe he can do the same thing for this for this young guy and uh, start to maybe bring some of his uh, talent out. Um, this is another, this one and the, the night move are really, again, low impact, uh, sort of high upside additions. Daryl Morey is, loves to make those. So let's talk about Knight. So Brandon Knight has some real talent, but his the knocks on him have really been three things. First, he hasn't really been consistent. He's a little pouty, um, a little bit moody, or at least has been in the past. Um, he uh, he also has had some injury problems. He missed all of last year, last year with a torn ACL. Um, and there have been some questions about his leadership. Here's the positive side. First of all, he's had two seasons where he scored 20 points or more. Um, in his best season, he shot 41% from the three-point line. So the guy can shoot and he can score. 
He also has an extremely quick first step, which I assume will still be there even after the surgery. And if that's the case, it just gives another guy on the perimeter that's going to put pressure on the defense and, and just really just adds another layer to their offensive texture as a, as a team. And with athleticism, he can certainly play team defense in this particular setup. It also gives them depth at point guard. You know, they up until now, they had Chris Paul and Michael Carter-Williams. If Knight is able to sort of resurrect his career here, I mean, he's only going into like his fifth season. He's 25 years old. If he can resurrect his career, then he can be a really potent weapon off the bench. You bring him, you've got Eric Gordon. You know, the, the, really, it, it just shores up there. It makes them, like with him and Chris, really they have solid NBA players at all 12 roster spots, active roster spots. The other thing about Knight is while the questions have been about his leadership because he is a point guard, he's playing under one of the best point guard leaders of the last decade in Chris Paul. And not only that, but I think what's really interesting here is the pressure is off him. He no longer has to come into the team and be the guy. He doesn't have to lead the team in scoring. He doesn't have to be you know, the leader on the floor. He can come in and just be part of a really, really good team with a very, very solid locker room. And I think with both of those guys, they're going to benefit from being on a squad like this. Now, maybe they uh, don't do well, and, and if so, well, you know, you cut bait when, it, when you can. But they do, they do bring some additional talent, and the other thing is they get the team younger. Despite bringing Carmelo Anthony in this season, the Rockets are a younger team. James Ennis is younger. Uh, Trevor Rees and Luke Bamute were both older uh, than James Ennis. You bring in Brandon Knight and Marquise Chris, who are both younger than Ryan Anderson. They really have actually gotten younger this season, despite the fact that they added Carmelo Anthony, who's an older guy, and got sort of the, you know, most of the notice when it came to their deals. So it's a month before training camp. Uh, you know, hopefully this gives these new guys, maybe they'll get a chance to go play and I guess they go to the Bahamas or whatever to go have their like preseason, their pre-preseason get together with all the players. Hopefully these guys can go too and, and they'll come, you know, out of the gate roaring and uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed. I'm not going to count on anything, but you know, anything is good at this point because the Rockets have got a lot they're going to have to work on in order to, you know, beat Golden State. Mainly, they got to stay healthy, and we'll see if they can do that. All right, that's going to wrap it up for me, episode 13 of my Houston Sports Podcast. Just a reminder, I'll be back on Houston Matters on KUHF next Monday, September the 10th, and then back here Thursday. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Balky or via my email, jeffbalky at gmail.com. All the links in this uh, podcast will also be on my blog, jeffbalky.com. Next week, we'll be ready to talk about the Astros and their Boston series. And as they start heading towards the postseason, Texans will be headed for week two, hopefully 1-0. And we'll see what else comes up. Thanks so much for joining me. We will see you next week.